Section 33 of Marion Fay by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Volume 2, Chapter 11. Mr. Greenwood Becomes Ambitious. Mr. Greenwood was still anxious as to the health of the rector of Apple Slocum. There might even yet be a hope for him but his chance, he thought, would be better with the present Marquis, ill-disposed towards him as the Marquis was, than with the heir. The Marquis was weary of him, and anxious to get rid of him, was acting very meanly to him, as Mr. Greenwood thought, having offered him one thousand pounds as a final payment for a whole life's attention. The Marquis, who had ever been a liberal man, had now, perhaps on his deathbed, become unjust, harsh, and cruel. But he was weak and forgetful, and might possibly be willing to save his money and get rid of the nuisance of the whole affair by surrendering the living. This was Mr. Greenwood's reading of the circumstances as they at present existed. But the Marquis could not dispose of the living while the rector was still alive nor could he even promise it to any good effect without his son's assent. That Lord Hampstead would neither himself so bestow his patronage or allow it to be so bestowed, Mr. Greenwood was very sure. There had been that between him and Lord Hampstead which convinced him that the young man was more hostile to him even than the father. The Marquis, as Mr. Greenwood thought, had insulted him of late, but Lord Hampstead, young as he was, had also been insolent, and what was worse, he had insulted Lord Hampstead. There had been something in the young lord's eye which had assured him of the young lord's contempt as well as dislike. If anything could be done about the living, it must be done by the Marquis. The Marquis was very ill, that it was still probable that the old rector should die first. He had been given to understand that the old rector could hardly live many weeks. Mr. Greenwood understood but little of the young lord's character. The Marquis, no doubt, he knew well, having lived with him for many years. When he supposed his patron to be fretful and irascible because of his infirmities, but to be by nature forgiving, unreasonable, and weak, he drew an easy portrait which was like the person portrayed. But in attributing revenge or harshness or pride of power to Lord Hampstead, he was altogether wrong. As regarded Appleslocombe and other parishes, the patronage of which would some day belong to him, Lord Hampstead had long since made up his mind that he would have nothing to do with them, feeling himself unfit to appoint clergymen to ministrations in a church to which he did not consider himself to belong. All that he would leave to the bishop, thinking that the bishop must know more about it than himself. Was his father, however, to make any request to him with reference to Appleslocombe especially? he would no doubt regard the living as bestowed before his father's death. But of all this Mr. Greenwood could understand nothing. He felt, however, that as the Marquis had given him cause for anger, 
so had the young lord given him cause for hatred as well as anger. Daily, almost hourly, these matters were discussed between Lady Kingsbury and the chaplain. There had come to be strong sympathy between them, as far as sympathy can exist, where the feelings are much stronger on the one side than on the other. The mother of the darlings had allowed herself to inveigh very bitterly against her husband's children by his former marriage, and at first had been received only halfway by her confidential friend. But of late her confidential friend had become more animated and more bitter than herself, and had almost startled her by the boldness of his denunciations. She, in her passion, had allowed herself more than once to express a wish that her stepson were dead. She had hardly in truth meant as much as she implied, or, meaning it, had hardly thought of what she meant. But the chaplain, taking the words from her lips, had repeated them till she was almost terrified by their iniquity and horror. He had no darlings to justify him. No great injury had been done to him by an unkind fortune. Great as were the sin of Lord Hampstead and his sister, they could bring no disgrace upon him. And yet there was a settled purpose of hatred in his words which frightened her. Though she could not bring herself to oppose them, she in her rage had declared that it would be well that Lord Hampstead should break his neck out hunting or go down in his yacht at sea and she had been gratified to find that her friend had sanctioned her ill wishes. But when Mr. Greenwood spoke as though something might possibly be done to further those wishes, then she almost repented herself. She had been induced to say that if any power should come to her of bestowing the living of Apple Slocum, she would bestow it on Mr. Greenwood. Were Lord Hampstead to die before the Marquis, and were the Marquis to die before the old rector, such power would belong to her during the minority of her eldest son. There had, therefore, been some meaning in the promise, and the clergyman had referred to it more than once or twice. "'It is most improbable, you know, Mr. Greenwood,' she had said very seriously. He had replied as seriously that such improbabilities were of frequent occurrence. If it should happen, I will do so, she had answered. But after that she had never of her own accord referred to the probability of Lord Hampstead's death. From day to day there grew upon her a feeling that she had subjected herself to domination, almost to tyranny, from Mr. Greenwood. The man whom she had known intimately during her entire married life now appeared to assume different proportions and almost a different character. He would still stand before her with his flabby hands hanging listlessly by his side, and with eyes apparently full of hesitation, and would seem to tremble as though he feared the effect of his own words. But still the words that fell from him were felt to be bonds from which she could not escape. When he looked at her from his lackluster eyes, fixing them upon her for minutes together, till the minutes seemed to be hours, she became afraid. She did not confess to herself that she had fallen into his power. Nor did she realize the fact that it was so. 
but without realizing it she was dominated, so that she also began to think that it would be well that the chaplain should be made to leave Trafford Park. He, however, continued to discuss with her all family matters as though his services were indispensable to her, and she was unable to answer him in such a way as to reject his confidences. The telegram reached the butler as to Hampstead's coming on the Monday, and was, of course, communicated at once to Lord Kingsbury. The Marquis, who was now confined to his bed, expressed himself as greatly gratified, and himself told the news to his wife. She, however, had already heard it, as had also the chaplain. It quickly went through the whole household, in which, among the servants, there existed an opinion that Lord Hampstead ought to have been again sent for some days since. The doctor had hinted as much to the marchioness, and had said so plainly to the butler. Mr. Greenwood had expressed to her ladyship his belief that the Marquis had no desire to see his son, and that the son certainly had no wish to pay another visit to Trafford. "'He cares more about the Quaker's daughter than anything else,' he had said, "'about her and his hunting. "'He and his sister consider themselves as separated from the whole of the family. "'I should leave them alone if I were you.' "'Then she had said a faint word to her husband, "'and had extracted from him something that was supposed to be the expression of a wish "'that Lord Hampstead should not be disturbed.' Now Lord Hampstead was coming without any invitation. "'Going to walk over, is he, in the middle of the night?' said Mr. Greenwood, preparing to discuss the matter with the Marchioness. There was something of scorn in his voice, as though he were taking upon himself to laugh at Lord Hampstead for having chosen this way of reaching his father's house. "'He often does that,' said the Marchioness. It's an odd way of coming into a sick house to disturb it in the middle of the night. Mr. Greenwood, as he spoke, stood looking at her ladyship severely. How am I to help it? I don't suppose anybody will be disturbed at all. He'll come round to the side door, and one of the servants will be up to let him in. He always does things differently from anybody else. One would have thought that when his father was dying. Don't say that, Mr. Greenwood. There's nothing to make you say that. The Marquis is very ill, but nobody has said that he's so bad as that. Mr. Greenwood shook his head, but did not move from the position in which he was standing. I suppose that on this occasion Hampstead is doing what is right. I doubt whether he ever does what is right. I am only thinking that if anything should happen to the Marquis, how very bad it would be for you and the young lords. Won't you sit down, Mr. Greenwood? said the Marchioness, to whom the presence of the standing chaplain had become almost intolerable. The man sat down, not comfortably in his chair, but hardly more than on the edge of it, so as still to have that air of restraint which had annoyed his companion. "'As I was saying, if anything should happen to my lord, it would be very sad for your ladyship, and for Lord Frederick, and Lord Augustus, and Lord Gregory.' 
we are all in the hands of god said her ladyship piously yes we are all in the hands of god but it is the lord's intention that we should all look out for ourselves and do the best we can to avoid injustice and cruelty and and robbery i do not think there will be any robbery mr greenwood would it not be robbery if you and their little lordships should be turned at once out of this house it would be his own lord hampstead's of course and i should have slocombe abbey in somersetshire as far as a house goes i should like it better than this of course it is much smaller but what comfort do i ever have out of a house like this that's true enough but why there is no good in talking about it mr greenwood i cannot help talking about it it is because lady frances has broken up the family by allowing herself to be engaged to a young man beneath her own station in life here he shook his head as he always did when he spoke of lady frances as for lord hampstead i look upon it as a national misfortune that he should outlive his father what can we do well my lady it is hard to say what will my feelings be should anything happen to the marquis and should i be left to the tender mercies of his eldest son i should have no claim upon lord hampstead for a shilling as he is an infidel of course he would not want a chaplain indeed i could not reconcile it to my conscience to remain with him i should be cast out penniless having devoted all my life as i may say to his lordship's service he has offered you a thousand pounds a thousand pounds for the labors of a whole life and what assurance shall i have of that i don't suppose he has ever dreamed of putting it into his will and if he has what will a thousand pounds do for me you can go to slocombe abbey but the rectory which was as good as promised will be closed against me the marchioness knew that this was a falsehood but did not dare to tell him so the living had been talked about between them till it was assumed that he had a right to it if the young man were out of the way he continued there would be some chance for me i cannot put him out of the way said the marchioness and some chance for lord frederick and his brothers you need not tell me of that mr greenwood but one has to look the truth in the face it is for your sake that i have been anxious rather than my own you must own that she would not own anything of the kind i suppose there was no doubt about the first marriage none at all said the marchioness terrified though it was thought very odd at the time it ought to be looked to i think no stone ought to be left unturned there is nothing to be hoped for in that direction mr greenwood it ought to be looked to that's all only think what it will be if he marries and has a son before anything is is settled to this lady kingsbury made no answer 
and after a pause Mr. Greenwood turned to his own grievances. "'I shall make bold,' he said, "'to see the Marquis once again before Lord Hampstead comes down. He cannot but acknowledge that I have a great right to be anxious. I do not suppose that any promise would be sacred in his son's eyes, but I must do the best I can.' To this her ladyship would make no answer, and they parted not in the best humor with each other. That was on the Monday. On the Tuesday, Mr. Greenwood, having asked to be allowed an interview, crept slowly into the sick man's room. "'I hope your lordship find yourself better this morning?' The sick man turned in his bed and only made some feeble grunt in reply. "'I hear that Lord Hampstead is coming down tomorrow, my lord.' why should he not come there must have been something in the tone of mr greenwood's voice which had grated against the sick man's ears or he would not have answered so sulkily oh no my lord i did not mean to say that there was any reason why his lordship should not come perhaps it might have been better had he come earlier it wouldn't have been better at all I only just meant to make the remark, my lord. There was nothing in it. Nothing at all, said the sick man. Was there anything else you wished to say, Mr. Greenwood? The nurse all this time was sitting in the room, which the chaplain felt to be uncomfortable. Could we be alone for a few minutes, my lord? he asked. I don't think we could, said the sick man. "'There are a few points which are of so much importance to me, Lord Kingsbury. "'I ain't well enough to talk business, and I won't do it. "'Mr. Roberts will be here tomorrow, and you can see him.' "'Mr. Roberts was a man of business, or agent to the property, "'who lived at Shrewsbury, and whom Mr. Greenwood especially disliked. "'Mr. Greenwood, being a clergyman, was, of course, supposed to be a gentleman.' and regarded Mr. Roberts as being much beneath himself. It was not customary for Mr. Roberts to dine at the house, and he was therefore regarded by the chaplain as being hardly more than an upper servant. It was therefore very grievous to him to be told that he must discuss his own private affairs and make his renewed request as to the living through Mr. Roberts. It was evidently intended that he should have no opportunity of discussing his private affairs. Whatever the Marquis might offer him, he must take, and that, as far as he could see, without any power of redress on his side. If Mr. Roberts were to offer him a thousand pounds, he could only accept the check and depart with it from Trafford Park, shaking off from his feet the dust which such ingratitude would forbid him to carry with him. He was in the habit of walking daily for an hour before sunset, moving very slowly up and down the driest of the roads near the house, generally with his hands clasped behind his back, believing that in doing so he was consulting his health and maintaining that bodily vigor which might be necessary to him for the performance of the parochial duties at Appleslocombe. Now, when he had left the bedroom of the Marquis, he went out of the front door, and proceeded on his walk at a somewhat quicker pace than usual. 
He was full of wrath, and his passion gave some alacrity to his movements. He was, of course, incensed against the Marquis, but his anger burnt hottest against Lord Hampstead. In this he was altogether unreasonable, for Lord Hampstead had said nothing and done nothing that could injure his position. Lord Hampstead disliked him, and perhaps despised him, but had been anxious that the Marquis should be liberal in the mode of severing a connection which had lasted so long. But to Mr. Greenwood himself it was manifest that all his troubles came from the iniquities of his patron's two elder children, and he remembered at every moment that Lord Hampstead had insulted him when they were both together. He was certainly not a man to forgive an enemy, or to lose any opportunity for revenge which might come in his way. Certainly it would be good if the young man could be got to break his neck out hunting, or good if the yacht could be made to founder, or go to pieces on a rock, or come to any other fatal maritime misfortune. But these were accidents which he personally could have no power to produce. Such wishing was infantine and fit only for a weak woman such as the Marchioness. If anything were to be done, it must be done by some great endeavor, and the endeavor must come from himself. Then he reflected how far the Marchioness would certainly be in his power if both the Marquis and his elder son were dead. He did believe that he had obtained great influence over her, that she should rebel against him was, of course, on the cards, but he was aware that within the last month, since the date, indeed, at which the Marquis had threatened to turn him out of the house, he had made considerable progress in imposing himself upon her as a master. He gave himself, in this respect, much more credit than was in truth due to him. Lady Kingsbury, though she had learnt to fear him, had not so subjected herself to his influence as not to be able to throw him off, should a time come at which it might be essential to her comfort to do so. But he had misread the symptoms, and had misread also the fretfulness of her impatience. He now assured himself that if anything could be done he might rely entirely on her support. After all that she had said to him, it would be impossible that she should throw him over. Thinking of all this, and thinking also how expedient it was that something should be done, he returned to the house when he had taken the exact amount of exercise which he supposed necessary for his health. End of section 33 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina